What was behind the Canadian Prime Minister's affection for Adolf Hitler in the 30s? Why were multitudes of anti-communistic East European groups emigrating to Canada and what was the role of the CIA in this venture? What were the real goals of the conference in Yalta and who really made the most concessions? How did the U.S., who promoted NATO's war on the Soviet Union, adapt their strategy following the fall of the Nazis in 1945? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we broadcast the ultimate anti-war special during Remembrance Week, emphasizing the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. First, we hear from Richard Saunders about the role Canada played in backing Hitler and anti-communistic ethno-nationalist groups. Then, in our second half hour, the Canadian historian Jacques Powells joins us once again to help us understand how Wall Street's alignment with the Nazis going into war determined the direction of the war and beyond. On this week's program, the never-ending war during the time we should never forget. Remembrance Day salute with Richard Saunders and Jack Powells. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 13, 2020. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis in the historical territory of the Hiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping the world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for downloading or streaming at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. There is a small and potentially growing all-causes excess mortality signal. I am working with a pathologist, and our evaluation so far shows that these excess deaths are inconsistent with being COVID-19. In short, they are not dying from respiratory illness, but from heart failure and from cerebrovascular accidents such as stroke and diabetes. An awful realization I have is that these excess deaths are just the sort you would expect if you take a mixed population, deprive them of easy access to the healthcare system for seven months, and keep them stressed. Looking at data obtained from contacts within the NHS, we do not have hospitals full of respiratory patients to any greater extent than usual for November. That comes from the article, A Plea to MPs from Mike Yaden, Don't Vote for Lockdown, The Pandemic is Over, by Dr. Mike Yaden, posted November 11th, originally appearing in Lockdown Skeptics. After weeks of heavy fighting, both sides likely sustaining significant loss of lives and equipment, along with destruction in areas of conflict, Perhaps their leadership wants resolution at this time, even if issues between both sides remain unresolved.
Before conflict erupted, Turkey provided arms to Azerbaijan and trained its forces. President Erdogan also sent jihadists to aid Azeri forces on the ground. He'll likely want to say on what happens going forward, perhaps an arrangement similar to what he and Putin agreed to in Syria that was far less than ideal. According to Putin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, the armistice agreement includes nothing about involving Turkish peacekeepers. That comes from the article, Agreed on Armistice in Nagorno-Karabakh, brokered by Moscow, by Stephen Lenman, posted November 11th. This petition is a formal request to Congress for redress of grievances regarding the federal government's misconduct detailed in the referenced petition related to the post-9-11 anthrax attacks of 2001. These attacks against Congress and the media involved use of a lethal biological warfare agent. This lethal agent killed five individuals, injured at least 17 others, and was used to attempt the assassination of two United States senators. This petition centers on multiple lines of evidence relating to the FBI's investigation of the anthrax attacks beginning in 2001 and concluding in 2010, which was intentionally obstructed and was not conducted in good faith. The FBI's analyses and reports were knowingly deceptive. That comes from the article, Petition to Congress to Initiate a Congressional Investigation into the 2001 Anthrax Attacks by the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, Incorporated, posted November 10th, originally published at the group's website. It became clear late in the election that Dr. Fauci was more political than he portrayed when he essentially endorsed Joe Biden. Further, some segment of the public health establishment wants widespread vaccination and other policies like mask mandates and rolling lockdowns. High case numbers allow them to push these policies. High positive test numbers also create a higher r naught which is the measure of contagiousness. These policies are easier to push if the public believes COVID-19 is horribly contagious, making it seem a danger to at-risk loved ones. That comes from the article, Dr. Fauci told the truth about COVID-19 tests in July and has been misleading the public ever since. By Stacy Lennox, posted November 11th, originally published at PJ Media. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. As Canada is revered as peacemakers who played that role in World War II, we frequently forget about its record of anti-Semitic and anti-communist conduct. And we also forget that we too had a friendly relationship with Adolf Hitler. Richard Saunders dug into the record of World War II. He's the Ottawa-based coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade and chief editor of Press for Conversion magazine. I opened our conversation by asking him to describe 
then Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and his affection for Adolf Hitler. They hated communists and they hated Jews. Those were the two main enemies that they had in their mind. That was their, the ideology that kind of held them together. And this is part of why Mackenzie King admired Hitler so much was because that Hitler was basically the world's leading uh, anti-communist. You know, no one spoke out more against communism than Hitler. In later 1938, France and Britain, uh, of course, notoriously, they signed a, a peace treaty with Germany and Italy, and they gave the Nazis their blessing so that the Nazis could invade and occupy Czechoslovakia. And, you know, Chamberlain, Prime Minister of Britain, called it peace for our time. And so I looked up to see what King said about that, and he, was, he said he was so excited to read about, uh, to hear about uh, on the radio about Chamberlain and he got messages from Britain uh, about this and he heard about the very friendly uh, meeting that was held in Munich and, he, and King wrote, what a happy man Chamberlain must be and what an example he has set the world in preservation of a just cause. And then he said that after he listened to the uh, final news on the radio about it. He said he was so ecstatic. He said, I knelt down and thanked God with all my heart for the peace that had been preserved to the world. Okay, so that's the, that's a, sort of, it gives you a, an idea of what we're dealing with here in Canada and Canada's, uh, our Canadian leader's attitude towards Hitler. They saw him as a, as a, a guy who was going to fight against the Soviets, and that was great. Uh, as far as they were concerned. So, but what the narrative that we hear nowadays is this narrative about how Nazism and communism are equal evils. They were equal tyrannies. And this is pr promoted largely by this propaganda campaign or it, 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 that spread around the world. And it started in Canada, it started in Toronto. It's called Black Ribbon Day. And it, it, what it does is it calls attention and it tries to focus everyone's attention on this one day, which was August 23rd, 1939, when, when Germany and the USSR signed a non-aggression treaty. They both agreed not to attack each other. They forget that 27 million Soviets died fighting against Nazis. They forget that the world's biggest invasion of all history up until that time and since, there's never been an invasion bigger than what was Operation Barbarossa. And that's when, the, the, when Germany uh, invaded the Soviet Union across like a 2,000 kilometer front, just thousands of tanks and thousands of planes and uh, millions of people and horses all attacked the Soviet Union all on one day. And it led to 27 million people uh, fighting and dying like uh, to repel the Nazis and the biggest battle in world history up until that time and since still the biggest battle was in Stalingrad and that's when the war turned around and the Soviets uh, from that point on they were able to start driving the Nazis back across Europe and drove them all the way back to Berlin. Okay. Um, but no, somehow people think that 
the Nazis and the, the, the Soviets were the same. Legions of Eastern European groups, as they lost the war, found their way back to Germany and eventually to other nations in the West. These groups have a dark background. Richard Saunders explains here how these Eastern European organizations allied with Canada. I, I think about 160,000 East Europeans came to Canada, were brought to Canada, were welcomed to Canada by the Canadian government. We sought them out and we brought them here, we, the government, um, in, the, in the first years after the Second World War. It, uh, so there were the Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, Poles, the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians were really the... Uh, the strongest, the most dedicated anti-communists, and they were really strong collaborators with the with the Nazis. Uh, there were I, I, not all of them, of course. I mean, there were Ukrainians and people from those other countries as well who were who were fighting against the Nazis and joining the Red Army, etc. But um, uh, just before I mention the thing, before I get into them coming to Canada, it's important to know that in 1943, after the Battle of Stalingrad, the Nazis uh, called upon their Ukrainian allies, uh, particularly the, uh, the uh, Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists under the leadership of Stepan Bandera. Uh, who has a strong cult-like following in the world today with uh, there's huge rallies of tens of thousands in the Ukraine now uh, for Bandera and his, uh, and his uh, nationalist uh, movement that he was leading. Anyway, at, uh, in 1943, Bandera's um, army, uh, the, uh, they brought together armies from all over Eastern Europe. There were about 20 different ethnic nationalist groups that were brought together under the umbrella, uh, brought together under the leadership of the Bandera uh, Ukrainian nationalists. And they were from all of these Eastern European countries and they, they banded together to help the Nazis and to fight against the Red Army and to fight against communist uh, partisans that were uh, leading the, the, the the fight against uh, uh, against the Nazis. Okay, so when it became apparent that this, the Red Army was going to finally succeed and drive Nazis back out of Eastern Europe, um, tens of thousands of or hundreds of thousands of East Europeans fled from their countries and went to Germany and to other countries. Most of them went to Germany to Nazi Germany when it was still before the war had ended, if in some cases they went there. And then they were in these, uh, when the war ended, they were in these displaced persons camps. And then many of them included uh, uh, veterans of these fascist armies that also believed in the, uh, the in uh, their main enemy was the Judeo-Bolshevik Judeo uh, bogeyman that Canada and the Nazis also uh, conjured up uh, in their imaginations. Um, so about 160,000 of these emigres settled in Canada, a lot of them in Toronto. And, uh, and, and then they, these, these, these very strongly anti-communist, um, uh, 
individuals who came here, they, they became the leaders and organizers of, organ, of groups that represented their, their ethnic communities. So you'd have, they, would, they formed organizations or if organizations already existed to represent those ethnic groups, then they took over leadership positions. But often they formed the, the ethnic groups that would then represent those organizations and lobby the government and work with the government. And uh, these, these individuals, the leaders and founders of these uh, Canadian ethnic uh, organizations were just, these groups were riddled with Nazi collaborators, veterans of the SS, uh, Holocaust perpetrators, people who were, um, convicted uh, by the Soviets of, uh, of war crimes, and they fled to Canada, and they basically led peaceful, wonderful lives here, organizing organizations, continuing their propaganda against the communist, against their communist enemies. They, they dropped the, the Jewish, overt, the overt references to Jews as being the enemies, but they kept on and persisted in their propaganda against communists. And this was great for the Canadian government because it also uh, had been involved for decades in anti-communist, uh, you know, uh, policies and, and uh, wars around the world. Who, you're saying that people, some of them anyway, who were Holocaust perpetrators, they were granted safe passage to Canada? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then even when they were exposed as being who they were, and they were put on trial in absentia by the Soviet Union, uh, in some cases they, uh, they were put on trial, uh, even though Canada and Britain and these other countries that also welcomed them, they didn't allow them to be extradited because no one believed anything that the Soviet, they said, well, we can't believe anything that the Soviets say about this. But the Soviets would organize these trials. Um, there was a case of a guy in Winnipeg, since you're in Winnipeg, I'll mention him. His name was Alexander Lack, and he was an Estonian, and he was the com commander of a Nazi death camp. And he came to Canada right after the war he wasn't just a guard at a camp. He was the commander of a Nazi death camp in, uh, in Estonia, okay? And when the Soviets, uh, Soviet media uh, uh, said there's a, there's a death camp uh, commander living in Winnipeg, um, everybody came out to, they didn't name him, but they said there is this guy some, in, in Winnipeg and we know who he is and he was, he was his commander. Everybody, and then uh, he committed suicide a week later. He hanged himself. Um, but everybody came out in support of this guy. Everybody said he was, he was uh, innocent. His family, his friends, his co-workers at the Royal Canadian Air Force Base, um, uh, the politicians, the media, everybody said the guy's perfectly innocent. It's all just a big Soviet smear campaign. Well, then they, they organized a trial of various different people for war crimes, and they had 40 different witnesses identify him. And then these women from New York who had Holocaust survivors saw his picture in the paper and they said, yes, indeed, that's the guy. He's the guy. And they, uh, it, the, the word came out, they had other Nazis in, uh, that were on trial who said, who also 
accused this guy who had been living in Canada for all these years. And the, the ethnic uh, organization, the Estonian Central Council, its leaders who were also Nazi Waffen-SS veterans, they came out and said, oh, it's just a big Soviet smear campaign. It's not true. But then when they had the trial and all these witnesses came out and these women came out and said, yes, there were these, they would force the women to have sex. There would be all this drugs and alcohol and then they'd force them to have sex and they'd kill them. And they implicated him in this. And everybody, and then they shut up. They never said anything about the guy again after that. What, what, what year was that? This was in, uh, in the late in the 50s i don't have the exact uh, date um but and then and then in 1960 the leader of the estonian central council goes and meets prime minister diefenbaker and he meets with pearson who was the opposition leader like not only do they the were these characters you know given free passage here and they were allowed to organize and and, and lead organizations representing their groups, they met with the prime minister. They met with the opposition leaders. They met and they lobbied, you know, and sometimes there would be huge, there would be these Ukrainians would organize protests at the Soviet embassy in the, in the fifties and, and they'd throw things and they'd rush the lines and they'd have like a fire bombs and they'd break windows. And then, um, and then a minister. Or they'd be meeting with bureaucrats and, and telling them what to do about communists. According to Richard Saunders' research, these groups had connections with anti-Bolshevik nations, the Anti-Communist League, and the CIA. I dug a little further on the CIA's relationship with these ethno-nationalist clubs. So they started recruiting uh, East European fascists even towards uh, before the war ended. Um, Reinhard Gellin is somebody that people should look into Galen is G-E-H-L-E-N. He was in Nazi uh, Germany's leading um, intelligence uh, asset who was coordinating these uh, fascist East European armies that helped them to fight against the Soviets. And, and when they, it became apparent that Germany was gonna lose the war, he turned himself into the Americans. And he said, look, I'll come and work for you and I'll bring my whole team with me, and we have all this, all this, all the files and data on all the our allies in the east, in Eastern Europe, and we'll share them with you, and we'll work with you. And the guy, Galen, became the head of uh, Germany's um, West Germany's uh, spy agency, and he, it was called the Galen Org. Um, anyway, so. Um, One of the tropes, the metaphors, the memes that uh, Hitler and the Nazis used during the war was the idea of slavery or captive nations or subjugated nations that are held enslaved by the Soviet Union. This was one of their key kind of metaphors that they used. And that, I, that meme of the captive nations, it became a, a, a huge thing after the war. And uh, the, um, the CIA was very involved in continuing that uh, whole conceit uh, that had been started uh, by the Nazis uh, during the war. So the captive nations movement was um, uh, funded and uh, assisted in many ways by the Central Intelligence Agency. They had front organizations that um, 
for example, the, the main one was the National Committee for a Free Europe. Uh, it was created in 1954. Um, I believe Alan Dulles, basically they brought together uh, these East European fascists. They set up, the CIA set up the uh, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, which still exists, but now they're funded by largely by George Soros. It became known that the CIA uh, was the funding, was providing the financing for the Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Initially, Radio Liberty was called Radio Liberation from Bolshevism, but they shortened it to Radio Liberty, which is what it's called now. But initially, it was Radio uh, Liberation from Bolshevism. And uh, they employed Nazis uh, to continue the propaganda. It was a huge propaganda uh, outlet, the biggest propaganda uh, force that the CIA ever ran. And it was uh, privatized, basically, when it became apparent that the CIA, and they, they had to admit it was outed, they were outed as being the, the financial godfathers of the of RFERL. Um, uh, so it worked very closely with these uh, East European emigres, put them on the air, they continued their propaganda, and uh, including Nazi collaborators uh, that... Uh, had been busy during the war perpetrating the Holocaust. So those are the kind of characters. But then when the, uh, so the CIA, if you, the CIA has had to release because of, uh, uh, they've had to release a lot of files, hundreds of thousands of files. So it's all, it's all easily accessible now. A lot of the details of, and you'll, you can find that because Canada was so deeply in, we, we, Canada brought in so many East European fascists, collaborators, uh, perpetrators, thousands of Waffen SS uh, veterans, um, that uh, in those CIA files, Canada is mentioned hundreds of times, hundreds of times. There's references to Canada, to Canadian organizations, Canadian publications. Uh, individuals that were that uh, were collaborating with the Nazis during the war, and then they came over here, and then they kept kept their work, kept doing their work, and the CIA was helping them. Remembrance Day should be about more than saluting fallen friends who died in the war. For some, at least, we dedicate ourselves to the principle of stopping wars, not repeating past mistakes. I asked Richard to share some thoughts about what men and women of peace should do in that spirit. Defund the fascist cults. We have these fascist cults in Canada that honor and revere and glorify Stepan Bandera and other war criminals and organizations and uh, their movements. And the Canadian government is giving hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to these organizations to build their community centers, to uh, to help their organizations' publications. I mean, there are publications devoted and which arose from these emigre groups that revere and glorify these uh, these Nazi uh, collaborating war heroes, and the Canadian government is funding them. Like, shouldn't we be? What is going on? 
well, how can that be? And the Canadian government collaborates with these organizations. They build monuments together. You know, they, they fund these, these groups. They should be defunding the fascist uh, cults. That's what they are as cults. When you have a, a leader from uh, who, and you blindly revere them and you bring your children up and they, and you have them in scouting organizations and they're wearing uh, uniforms and, um, and they march in, 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 in uh, rank and file and battle flags of armies that were fighting against our allies during the war uh, and then you're funding them, you're funding these organizations so that they can bring children up to wear uniforms and sing songs, uh, worshiping their, uh, their predecessors and the leaders of their organizations who, who fought in the war on the other side from us. What is going on? Why is Canada still funding these groups? I think it's, it's not likely that Canada is going to stop funding them anytime soon, but it's a demand that we should make, I think. You just heard from Richard Saunders, coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade and the chief editor of Press for Conversion magazine. The theme of the ethno-nationalist East European emigre groups coming to Canada is part of the next issue. You can order a copy by visiting the site coat.ncf.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. November 11th is Remembrance Day or Veterans Day in the United States, a day when we stop and reflect on all the past way during past war conflict, particularly World War I, World War II, and the Korean Wars. World War II in particular is arguably the most difficult war to criticize. And the Western nations invariably cast their soldiers in the role of heroes who saved the world. Unfortunately, Hitler would likely never have become anywhere near such a menace if US politicians and businesses weren't heavily investing in his military forces, both as a menace to the USSR and as a tidy friend of Wall Street. We're going to carry on with that conversation and the follow-up after the war with the guest who broke that story for us. His name is Dr. Jack Powell. Uh, he is a Canadian historian and author of the 2000 book, The Myth of the Good War, America in the Second World War. And he also wrote the 2017 book, Big Business and Hitler, all as well as the the Great Class War of 1914 to 1918. He's also a research associate with the Center for Research on Globalization. Dr. Powell, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Michael. So um, as we mentioned before, there was uh, the United States was you know, pivotal in, in supporting the, the, the Nazis to the point where they became a powerful force that could go after uh, the Soviets. And uh, the same, I mean, the United Kingdom as well, to a certain extent. And, and yet, when you get to uh, the February 11th, February 4th to February 11th of 1945, the uh, forces had uh, basically turned the, turned the tide and, and the Soviets were really rushing towards or 
you know, beating the, uh, the Nazis back. At the same time, the West was coming in from the West Front. And so it looked like the United States and, and the United Kingdom and Britain uh, and uh, the Soviets were going to beat the, uh, the Nazis. But at the same time, the United States and the United Kingdom were planning on, on the other way around, but the Nazis were going after, were going after the Soviets. So when it comes to the, the Yalta conference in, in February of 1945, uh, in which Churchill uh, and Roosevelt met with Adolf Hitler, I'm I'm tempted to ask what was oh, the in their minds, you know, because you know uh, it, this was the the, the the conference that planned out, you know, okay, how how we're going to win the war and how we're going to split the, the divisions, the freedom and the free elections in every country, and then the, the layout of the United Nations and so on. But give give us the the inside scoop. We're going back to chapter twelve of your uh, of your book. What what really was going on in the minds of these leaders? Well, we should keep in mind, Michael, that the Second World War was a very complex war. I mean, wars in general are pretty complex, and world wars are extra complex. And the Second World War was super extra complex in that, in a way, if you want to simplify it a bit, it was really two wars rolled in one. And one was a war between imperialist powers, I mean, between the major Western, as we call it, meaning capitalist powers, such as Nazi Germany, which was a capitalist country, not, don't forget that, the United States, Britain, France for a while, and so on, you know, fighting against each other for supremacy. You know, there was a sort of a rat race going on ever since the late 19th century for, you know, for, for, for being number one in the camp of the imperialist nations. And for the First World War was fought about that and had not led to a clear decision. Britain and France had defeated Germany, but Germany was not on its knees, was still ambitious. And France and Britain, while winners were, were exhausted. And then there were newcomers on the scene of imperialist rivalry, such as the United States and Japan, don't forget Japan. So really what happened is that it still had to be sorted out which one of these major powers or which block you know, would come to the fore and take over the, you might say, worldwide leadership of the imperialist camp, that is to say the capitalist camp, if you want the Western world, and in this case, including, oddly enough, Japan, an Eastern country. So that was one aspect of the Second World War. And the second aspect of the Second World War is that it was a war between capitalist countries, the imperialist countries, you know, called the Western world, against that big challenge, you know, that was the product of the Russian Revolution, the Soviet Union, which was, of course, had, was anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist, meaning it was basically you know, supporting anti-capitalist movements in the Western world itself. And even more, more traumatically from the perspective of London and Washington and so on, the Soviet Union was also anti-imperialist, meaning supporting the struggle for independence in the colonies of Western countries and semi-colonies like, like China. So that, was a, that made the Soviet Union a really nasty thorn in the side of any capitalist country. So what you have in the Second World War is through the complexity of the situation, you have an odd situation where at the same time, some capitalist, two blocks of capitalist countries are fighting each other, namely Nazi Germany, very, very ambitious, uh, wants to be the leader of the capitalist world, so to speak, you know, certainly in Europe, right? And on the other hand, opposed to them, first France, but France falls by the wayside as early as 1940, Britain is still around, and then the United States show up to 
could get involved and Japan gets involved. So you have the two blocks of imperialist powers fighting each other. At the same time, Germany is taking upon itself the job that in some ways every imperialist power had dreamed of doing it from the very start in 1917, namely defeat the revolution, defeat the, the product, the fruit of the revolution, the Soviet Union. And Hitler is going to do it and he can't wait to do it. And when he does it, when he attacks the Soviet Union in 1941, even though his problems have not yet been settled in the fight, in, in the intra-imperialist fight against Britain and so on, you know, he can't wait. He wants to smash the Soviet Union. And there's a lot of people in Britain and in the United States who sympathize with that. Even though Britain is at war with Germany, a lot of the upper class folks in Britain who despised the Soviet Union from the start and had sent troops during the civil war in Russia to support the whites and counter-revolutionaries against the red revolutionaries. They were kind of hoping that Hitler would do the dirty job for them and smash the Soviet Union. That was the idea, right? So they encouraged it. By the way, that was the purpose of the so-called appeasement policy of the British Premier Chamberlain in the late 1930s, uh, which we now know very well. It was not a policy of weakness. It was a policy to encourage Hitler to move against the East. So what happened was that through the, through the ironies, you might say, of history and ironies of war, of which there are many, the contradictions of the whole situation, you know, basically the Soviet Union found itself to be an ally of some of one of the blocs in the imperialist camp, namely the bloc led by Britain at first and then later on the United States, you know, and facing the might of Germany and also Japan. Right? So from the perspective of Washington and London, then the Soviet Union was a useful ally in the struggle against the competition of Berlin. At the same time, you hated them for being anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist. But the first thing was you had to defeat Germany first. Right? And in that respect, the Soviet ally, unloved, in fact, despised, but couldn't say that, you know, was, was useful, was extremely useful. And uh, the friendship, the alliance with the Soviet Union then, from the perspective of London and of Washington, was only for the duration. It was based on having a common enemy, right? And as such, it was doomed to end, you know, when that common enemy would be defeated. And that's the situation you're actually alluding to in the spring of 1945, mm -hmm. when it is becoming obvious that the common enemy of the British and Americans on the one hand, and the Soviet Union on the other hand, the common enemy, Germany, is about to be kaput right? and to be defeated. And that really means the end of the friendship, the friend, end of the alliance, right? And actually some, some American generals who had always hated the Soviet Union, but were happy to have them do most of the killing and dying of Germans on their behalf, you know, mentioned to each other in, a, in, in, in some conversations that we were actually at, we meaning the Americans, were fighting the wrong war with the wrong ally against the wrong enemy. Because if, essentially they had more sympathy for a fellow pro-capitalist, pro-imperialist country like Nazi Germany than for a despicable socialist country that was anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist. But that was useful, that was useful. So, so that is why, that is why in the February, March, 1945, as you mentioned, when it's clear that Nazi Germany is gonna be defeated on its knees anytime soon, that uh, either we have to make arrangements that favor us in the post-war era, or possibly even continue the war with what's left over the German army against the Soviet Union. And that was the plan that was called Operation Unthinkable. It was actually a brainchild of Churchill and men around him, I guess, but heavily favored by the likes of, for example, General Patton. Roosevelt wasn't so sure, but Truman later on liked the same idea. The idea was that once 
Hitler would be defeated and the Hitler Nazis would be gone, perhaps we could have Germany ruled by some decent military men, you know what I mean? Some generals, you know, that would then take over and we become our allies. A bit like in Italy, where Mussolini had been eliminated for the convenience of the allies and quickly replaced, not by the genuine anti-fascist opposition, which was mostly communist and therefore unwanted by the British and the Americans, but by Marshal Badoglio, who was a military man, who actually fought all the nasty wars on Mussolini, you know, but who had, the, who had the advantage to the British and the Americans that he was not a communist, he was not a socialist, he was on their side, right? So they bombarded him to be the leader of the liberated Italy. But the idea was to do something similar with Germany, you know, is get rid of, not, of Hitler. They're just, we cannot possibly deal with them. Even Goering, even some of the other guys that were kind of hoping that they might be acceptable as partners for, for, the, for the allies. But no, they wanted some generals of some sort. But unfortunately, these guys had been eliminated by the attempt on Hitler's life, the von Stauffenbergs and so on. But even so, there was hope that we could maybe take use all these German prisoners of war against the Soviets. And we now know that this Operation Unthinkable, which was planned by Churchill in March 1945, involved keeping German soldiers in their uniforms with their weapons under the command of their officers, you know, so that we could use them when the moment would come, maybe next week, maybe next month, to march to Moscow together with them, as, as Patton was really keen to do. And shamefully, uh, even the Canadian troops were involved in that. And I, uh, I hate to have to say something negative about the Canadian army in the Second World War, especially the day after Remembrance Day, when we obviously like to take our hat off to the army and they've done a wonderful job in many ways. But in liberated Holland in 1945, the Canadian, military authorities allowed the Germans to keep their weapons, to remain under the command of their soldiers and actually execute you know, some of their own deserters who had taken up the Canadian offer when the war was still on of running over to their surrendering since it was no longer worth fighting for Hitler, come and join us and the war is over for you. Some of these deserters that had tried to desert actually had been arrested by the Germans and were accused of treason by the Germans and were actually condemned to death. And the Canadian authorities allowed these men to be executed in newly liberated Holland. And all of that for the sake of keeping these men ready for possible use against the Soviets in the context of Operation Unthinkable. So unthinkable it was, but it was thought of. And that is what we're talking about. Now, the Yalta agreement, had the Yalta meeting had taken place earlier in February when, when Roosevelt was still alive and Roosevelt had a bit of a more, I would say, a more decent opinion about the Soviet Union. He wanted to keep good relations with the Soviet Union. He was not so keen as Churchill were, was, and as, uh, as they, Patton would be, and as Truman would be, to if, go to war, perhaps, even against the Soviet Union. You know? uh, Roosevelt was, was more for a compromise, an arrangement. And that, that translated into the Yalta, uh, Yalta agreements, actually. Yeah. So that is... A, that, that is that is a different, kind of slightly different story. That was before the option of actually marching to Moscow was considered by the likes of Churchill and Patton. Yeah, there, the was, a, there was an, an aspect of this where there was a concern that the Russians would have rolled into Germany before the, the Allies would have, and then he could have taken over, uh, basically, you know, taken well, over the whole thing. But uh, well, that concern was different. In, but, uh, yeah, well, that concern. Sorry, the concern that the, that the Soviets would actually take over, would take Berlin, which they ended up doing, 
and take actually most of Germany and even possibly liberate Western Europe and arrive at the coast of the Channel, that already emerged, that concern emerged uh, in, the, in, in the heads of the leaders in London and Washington as early as the spring of 1943 after the Battle of Stalingrad and even more so after the Battle of Kursk in the summer of 1943 when, when the, the Nazis were defeated again very badly in the, in the Soviet Union and it looked like this, the Red Army might march all the way to, 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 to Berlin at that time already and we're talking about late 43. And that is when suddenly in London and in Washington decided we better land troops quickly in France, open the second front, for which Stalin had been asking for a long time already to, to help him out, to, get, to relieve the pressure, the German pressure on the Red Army. And then we, so they thought we better now land troops fast and start liberating Europe and start marching to Berlin. To, otherwise, the, the Red Army will do it all by itself. You know? And that was the idea. And that was actually also the idea behind, behind Yalta to make sure that the, that the, that the, the, the Soviets who were then looked looked like they were, were poised to take Berlin and looked like they might be end up all the way marched to Berlin, to Germany all the way to the Rhine to prevent them from controlling Germany after the war. That is actually what what why Churchill and Roosevelt went to Yalta and were insisting on a meeting with 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 Stalin so that they could divide Germany in occupation zones before the war would end because they were afraid that when the war would end and there would be no agreement. That, who, that, that, that location would, be, would determine who would be ruling what in that the Soviets would control most of Germany and would keep control of most of Germany without ceding it to the Americans. That plan came up after the, after the, the failure of Operation Market Garden in the Netherlands in September 19, 1944, when the idea had been to, to break through, to, to cross the Rhine and march on Berlin and be there well before the Soviets. And that would have meant that the Allies, the Western Allies, would have controlled most of Germany, but that failed. So in, the, in, in February, in, in, in late 1944, the Allies were just not still in the west of the Rhine. And at the same time, the Soviets were already approaching Berlin from the east. Uh, by early 1945, the Western Allies were at 500 kilometers from Berlin and the Soviets at 50 kilometers from Berlin. So the fear was that if the, at the, when the war would end, that Soviets might be on the other side of the Rhine when our American, British, Canadian troops would finally cross the Rhine, they would find the Soviets on the other side. And the Soviets would control 95% of Germany. And that's why Churchill and, and Roosevelt proposed to Stalin to meet and proposed in, in Yalta to divide Germany into three equal zones, one for the British, one for the Americans, and one for the Soviets, one third of Germany each which was a wonderful arrangement, actually, wonderfully advantageous to the Western allies. Because without such an arrangement, whichever ally controlled the part of Germany would administer the part of Germany. As the allies, the Western allies had done in Italy. When they liberated Italy, they kept all of Italy for themselves. They never asked the Soviets to occupy part of it, not, nothing at all. So they were afraid that if there wouldn't be an agreement, if there would be no agreement in place in advance, at the end of the war, the Red Army, having occupied all of Germany or most of it, would keep all of it for or most of it for itself. Wow. And the, the Yalta Agreement actually was a tremendous concession by Stalin. The myth of Yalta is that we gave everything away to Stalin at Yalta, and it's absolute utter nonsense. Stalin made major concessions at Yalta.
So uh, looking back after that, after the war, though the war was won, um, and after 1945, I mean, I think from the standpoint of the capitalist in Britain, and especially the United States, it was a, a major windfall. But uh, you know, the uh, the Soviet Union still remained, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering how did they continue that adventure? Were, were there any uh, were there any changes in their uh, overall strategy or? How did the United States go about continuing to uh, advance their uh, welfare through investing in warfare? Well, I mean, I'm not sure I, got, I understand the question right, but uh, I imagine what you're talking about then is what happened then after the defeat of Germany. You know, when Germany was defeated and surrendered to wave the white flag you know, in early May 1945, I mean, the situation in, 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 in Germany was not, and in Europe in general, was not quite as satisfactory as the British and the Americans had hoped because the Soviets were in Berlin and they, uh, they had occupied and liberated and occupied all of Eastern Europe. And, you know, obviously that was not exactly what they had hoped for. In fact, it was hoped that somehow the Soviets could be persuaded, forced, you know, if necessary, you know, to withdraw. That would have been actually the purpose that had been the purpose of this operation unthinkable that I talked about. And which, by the way, did not materialize not because Churchill suddenly decided, oh, well, it's not very nice to do that, so we won't do it. No, it didn't materialize because opinion polls you know, showed that a huge majorities of American civilians and soldiers you know, wanted good relations with the Soviet Union and opposed any action against the Soviet Union. You know? And that was made so clear, including actually strikes and soldiers wanted to go home after the war. The last thing they wanted to do, American soldiers, was after the defeat of Germany, is then to try to march to Moscow, especially as and I quote one of them in my books, since they knew, they said, what, what the Soviets had done to the Germans in Stalingrad, and we are not gonna go to Stalingrad. If, you, if Churchill wants to go to Stalingrad and to Moscow, let him go on his own. So that wouldn't fly, right? But so, so that was a disappointment for the new President Truman. And it was for Churchill too, when Germany then, then, then surrendered and it was stuck having to deal with the Soviets who were in Berlin, in Berlin even. Excuse me for a moment. But around the same time, Truman got word that the United States would soon have a new and all powerful weapon called the A-bomb. And there he thought, now that's a solution. That's gonna give me the Trump. That's gonna give me the weapon, literally the weapon you know, to drive the Soviets out of Germany, out of Europe, out of Poland even, you know, and get back to their goddamn Russian, you know, uh, Asian you know, land essentially. And even there, there was the hope perhaps that we could force them to go back to the universal church of capitalism as opposed to remaining, you know, a socialist, a communist a heretic. And that's when, Atomic diplomacy started, which has been described in great detail, you know, in a, in a number of books by American historians, which I cite in my book. And the idea was that with that bomb, we're going to tell the show the Russians what we can do, and they'll see that we are so powerful that they'll have to give in to any demands we make. And that is why Hiroshima and Nagasaki were destroyed. It was not to end the war against Japan, because Japan was quite willing to surrender, but there was a in Washington, Truman and his advisors felt the need to demonstrate what America could do with that new weapon. And actually the, that gesture was meant to intimidate Joseph, Joe Stalin in the Kremlin and to force him to make concessions. That was the, the purpose of this nuclear diplomacy. So a couple of hundred thousand Japanese died essentially 
to allow the Americans to impress the Russians. It's a real tragedy, isn't it, if you think about it. But, um, but even that didn't work out. And it didn't work out because the Russians knew already in advance that the Americans had a bomb. And they knew what, what, the, what, they were, what, the, the, what, what Washington, what Truman especially, was up to in Churchill too. So the, uh, the Soviet strategists had a time to think about how they would respond to that. And of course, one response that the Americans expected was total surrender, you know, submit, you know, just do what, they, what the Americans say, pull the troops out of Berlin, pull them out of Germany, pull them out of Poland, and let's go home and just lick our wounds and get nothing out of this war, right? Well, the Stalin and the Russians were not that stupid. We didn't consider other options. And one other option was to do exactly the opposite. It's, instead of pulling our troops back, and making ourselves vulnerable to having a bomb dropped on us, we're gonna stay as close as possible to the American lines. That's right in Germany, because if they wanna destroy our army, they have to drop the bomb right there on Berlin where we are, you know, near Munich where we are, where they are, because we are right at the Elbe River. Our troops are facing American troops on the other side. Are the Americans gonna drop a bomb on us and at the same time have the collateral damage as we now call it, killing tens of thousands of their own troops? No, they won't. And that's the counter strategy of the Soviets by which they neutralized the advantage that Truman believed to have with his bomb. So killing, massacring a couple hundred thousand Japanese at Hiroshima and Nagasaki basically ended up producing no advantage whatsoever. In fact, it produced a great disadvantage because it meant that the Soviets stayed in Eastern Europe, even though there's plenty of evidence that they were willing to withdraw under certain conditions, under certain conditions. For example, neutrality of the countries that they would pull out of. And I say that with certainty because it's exactly what happened in countries like Finland, for example, and Austria, which were also occupied by the Soviets, part at least, you know, and by the allies coming in from the other side, at least Austria, right? But where there was negotiations that led to both pulling out and the countries embracing neutrality, which is something the Soviets could live with, and the Americans had to learn to live with, even though they would have preferred, of course, you know, an ally, right? And that showed that the Soviet pulled out of Vienna. They pulled out, you know, of, of the, the part of Finland they had occupied. So that shows that it could have had the same thing could have happened in Germany. But the nuclear diplomacy was made Truman think that he was all powerful, that he could have his way, just simply force the Russians. And that's why the Potsdam agreements, the Potsdam meeting failed to produce an agreement because Truman felt that he had to make no concessions at all, no compromises at all, nothing for the Soviets. They have to pull out or else we drop the bomb, you know, and it, it, it backfired. It actually caused, it caused Eastern Europe to remain under, under Soviet occupation much longer and under a much tougher, a much harsher kind of Soviet occupation than would have been the case had they not been the threat of the bomb. Because we all know that countries that are threatened, that are at war, get very nasty even to their own people. And I'm just mentioning, for example, in the First World War, about which I wrote a book you mentioned, The Great Class War, France, Britain, United States, in, immediately or during the war introduced very restrictive laws, very repressive laws to keep an eye on their own citizens. You know? And similarly, the Russians introduced very repressive laws when they were under threat, under much greater threat, by the way, with an atom bomb. You know? So it's, it's normal that in the years after 1945 in Eastern Europe, the Russians were very tough because they were very, very, they were terrorized basically. And, and people that are terrorized are not happy campers. They're not kind people, you know. If you are doing the terrorizing, maybe you can afford to be friendly and nice and 
But if you are being terrorized, you're not, you're not in a good mood. You're not likely to be tolerant and pleasant you know, and polite and all that, yeah. if you know what I mean. So I don't know if that was the answer that you were looking for, or if it was even the answer to the question. But I think it was important to mention some of this, because the war against Japan was also part of this inter-imperialist rivalry, where Japan had chosen to be on the side of, of, of Germany against the bloc formed by Britain and the United States, right? So essentially, defeating Germany was one thing, but defeating Japan was even more important because the imperialist ambitions of the United States focused much more at first on the Far East than on Europe. You know? In fact, in fact, I in my new book that's coming out next year, I'm explaining how actually the Roosevelt administration provoked Japan into starting a war because the United States wanted a war with Japan in 1941, wanted it really, really badly, but it had to look like a defensive war. So they provoked, they definitely unquestionably provoked the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor. So they could present the war as a defensive war, right? But that was the war that was the greatest interest to the Americans because they wanted giant access to China. They wanted to prevent the Japanese from controlling the, the petroleum of Indonesia, Dutch colony. They wanted the Japanese to prevent the Japanese from controlling Indochina, Vietnam, formerly a French colony. Now they, they could see that if they weren't gonna have a war against Japan, that Japan might end up with these prizes, which the Americans won for themselves ever since the United States became involved in the business of uh, the, the Far East already at the late 19th century when they took away the Philippines from Japan. So that's another story, but the two hang together. Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it's now 75 years later and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem as if uh, tension is getting any uh, less serious, but. I think that uh, we're at a, the end of our time, but I really want to thank you uh, today for uh, shedding some light into these uh, long forgotten details uh, well, exactly. that should be about remembering today. Thank you yes. so much for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. Okay. We've been speaking with Dr. Jacques Powells, Canadian historian and author of several books correcting the record of American involvement in World War I and World War II. Before we close, the Global Research News Hour would like to emphasize that all wars are extremely complex ordeals, and while we should not ahead to all soldiers who paid a sacrifice in past wars, we warn that unless we can put an end to war profiteering, there's absolutely no guarantee that all the ceremonies will do anything to stop them from emerging again and again and again. A better tribute may be to organize politically against prime ministers and presidents in search of war profits than to be standing alongside them at these somber ceremonies. That's the end of the show for this week. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.